Well, if you want to turn to the book of Luke, if you have a Bible this morning, the sermon text is going to be Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we embark on a new journey through another book of the Bible, uh, Lord, I pray that you would sovereignly ordain these texts to the specific areas of our life that they might feed us just in your perfect timing the way you would desire. Uh, Father, I pray that we would have certainty concerning the things of Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel, which means good news, according to Luke contains the greatest story that's ever existed. The greatest true story. When we say narrative or story, sometimes we think it's a fable, but this contains in this gospel the greatest story ever told. You know, uh, as I was thinking about good movies that have a great message to them, and you get to the end of a movie, and they live happily ever after, right? At the end of a good movie, that's what happens. At the end of a good story, they live happily ever after until they get throat cancer and die slowly. You know, you think about it, Anything good that we love, we can always say, yeah, but. Yeah, but. I had the privilege of uh, going to a Vikings uh, preseason game with my dad and brother and brother-in-law, and my dad was reminiscing. He got to go to Game 7 of the World Series when the Twins won it the first uh, uh, time they won it. He actually got to go to both series. But he says he remembers driving back to Watertown thinking, as great as that was, nothing really changes in my life. A Minnesota team finally wins it, and yet, what's the big deal? Yeah, but I got to go to work on Monday. Everything in this life is like that. You get to go on vacation but you have to come home from vacation and go back to work. And you probably have more work waiting for you than when you left. You get to do all these things we look forward to, but isn't it true, even on the best 
days of our life, we can think, yeah, but grandma has cancer. Yeah, but I have this difficult circumstance at work. The good news of Christ is different than that. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Does anyone here care about last week's newspaper? You probably don't. Many of you probably read the newspaper and failed to read the good news of Christ, though, five days ago. That's entirely possible that that happened. But yet today, what's relevant? The good news of Christ, is that more relevant? Or the five-day-old newspaper? You see, the best story in the world deals with the most important issues we we have. So that on the worst day of your life, if you understand the good news of what's in the Gospel of Luke, if you trust by faith in Christ, on your worst day, you can say, yeah, but I have eternal life in Christ. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Test it to anything else in the world. Everything else in the world you can say, yeah, but, and think of something negative. But it's only the gospel of Christ that on your worst day, you can say, yeah, but there's resurrection from the dead. Yeah, but there's forgiveness for sin for me. So I hope you're excited. Some of you might be thinking we're going to be in Luke for a long time. The way I figure it, there's 139 sections of Luke, which might mean there's 139 sermons. But it's all about Christ and the good news. And that's what we need. We need to know Christ. We need to hear good news. In fact, that's how our faith grows. Faith doesn't grow by hearing something one time, agreeing with it to be true, but then not continuing to see it in God's Word. Our faith grows as we see it. So let's uh, uh, quickly look at a do a little intro into the book of Luke in comparison uh, with the other Gospels. Uh, you might be thinking, man, this is intro week. I want to really dive in. Well, we get to dive in to the first four verses, but here's the deal with Luke. I, we're going to see in a moment that Luke wrote this Gospel in the book of Acts all as one piece of work for a guy named Theophilus. And uh, he... he uh, wrote this work, he gathered all this information and he wrote it so that Theophilus could be certain concerning uh, the things uh, written about Christ and, and what God's been doing in, in salvation history. So compared to the other Gospels, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These books are called Gospels because they chronicle the good news the, uh, about Jesus' life, His death, and resurrection. If you remember from a few weeks ago, we need Jesus' life because our life is sinful. We need His life in our place. 
We need His death because we need a payment for sin. And we need a resurrection because we're all going to die because of our sin. And in Christ, all of our greatest needs are met. And so these are called uh, Gospels. Now it's interesting, Matthew and John were both apostles. They were eyewitnesses to Christ's life. They were there. They were commissioned to teach and to write. Mark was a close companion to Peter. Mark wasn't an apostle, but he was connected to an apostle. And Luke, like Mark, uh, isn't an apostle. He wasn't there. He wasn't eyewitnesses to to Christ's life. But he was the companion of the apostle Paul for many years and traveled with him and was imprisoned with him. And Luke is an interesting guy. If I were to ask you, what do we know about Luke? Most of you probably could say he was a doctor. If I ask you, what else do you know about him? You're probably going to be stumped. But we're going to dive into who this is. Luke never mentions his name once in Luke or Acts. So we're going to think about him today. He's the one who got inspired to write this. And and so we're going to see what we can figure out uh, from the Scriptures about him. So what makes Luke different from the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic Gospels, meaning they're similar. Uh, Most scholars think that Matthew and Luke both had Mark's Gospel as a source because it's almost word for word in both their Gospels. So one of the sources Luke had, it seems like, was Mark. seems like Matthew had Mark as well. And their synoptic Gospels in comparison to the totally different type of Gospel that John has given us. It's interesting, 90% of Mark's Gospel is found in Matthew. 50% of Mark's uh, Gospel appears in Luke. But Luke is a treasure. You know, we can make the mistake of thinking, if I've read Matthew, I've read Luke because they're so much alike, but that actually just isn't true. Basically, the first two chapters of Luke are totally unique to Luke. Uh, Chapters uh, 10 through 20 are entirely unique uh, to Luke. There's 35 miracles uh, in all four Gospels recorded of Jesus. Luke records 20 of them. Seven miracles of Christ were only recorded uh, by Luke. There's 50 parables, roughly, in all the Gospels. Luke records 35 of them, and 19 of them are unique to Luke alone. There's actually 30 events in Jesus' life that we would not know about if God had not inspired Luke to go do research and talk to eyewitnesses and gather uh, information about the life of Christ. Here's what I want you to feel. The Gospel of Luke is a treasure beyond treasures to us. We would not know who Christ was apart from 
the Gospels. And we would not know many things if Luke himself had not uh, decided to pick up the pen and research and, and study and write. Uh, significant stories that if we didn't have Luke, uh, we wouldn't have. Uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth at the birth of uh, Christ, our conception of John the Baptist. The angel's announcement to Mary. There's a good chance that Luke got to interview Mary about how the virgin birth came about and about all those uh, events. Uh, Zacchaeus, we know nothing about Zacchaeus. The two men walking on the Emmaus road, walking with the resurrected Christ, even though they didn't know. The Pharisee and the publican that, that are praying and, and the publican's the one that goes away uh, justified. The one who knows he's a sinner. The rich man and Lazarus, the prodigal son, all these are unique to Luke's Gospel. Uh, we could look at the themes. I'm just going to rattle them off to you. Uh, one commentator, uh, Robert Stein, sees eight themes in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the sovereign rule of God over history. It is clear, even in our text this morning, that uh, Luke believed God was sovereignly doing His work uh, throughout time. His plan was unfolding. Uh, the kingdom of God. The theme of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Christology. The last shall be first. This principle of the great reversal. Uh, the call to salvation. The Christian life. The atonement. All these are themes that Luke brings out in his Gospel. If we were going to do a simple outline of this book, uh, you could think of it like this. There's the prologue that we're going to go through today, which is actually pretty significant. And after that, you have the infancy narrative of Christ. Then you have the preparation time of Jesus' ministry when John the Baptist is preaching and Jesus is baptized. After that, you have Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is chapters 9 through 19. And then Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. Then Jesus' passion when He goes to the cross. And then the resurrection. So the infant, infancy narrative, the preparation for ministry, ministry in Galilee, journey to Jerusalem takes up ten chapters. Then we get three chapters of His ministry in Jerusalem. And then uh, we get uh, His death on the cross and resurrection. That's how uh, the book flows. So let's go ahead and look at our verses uh, for this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, what you may, or that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the author 
the audience, the action Luke takes, the aim of his action, and then we're going to see how in the world this applies to us today. So let's look at the author. Whenever we're reading Scripture, we know that Scripture has a divine author, that God is the one who writes Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God, it's His very words, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out of God's own mouth. And yet we know that God spoke through prophets. He spoke through the prophets' personalities. He spoke through the apostles. He spoke through Luke. Well, how did that happen? Second Peter 1.20 tells us a little bit of how this works. Peter says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture ever comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The same way a sailboat is carried along by the wind, God sovereignly works through the writer to write a perfect account. It's not necessarily dictation where they're hearing what God's saying. In fact, we see that Luke went. He's a historian. He gathered all the information he could. He talked to eyewitnesses. He ordered it. And then the Holy Spirit made sure that it was a perfect, exactly the words of God. Uh, in fact, we find out more of this from uh, John chapter 14. Jesus said to His disciples, He says this in verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus said, I'm going to go. God the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to bring back to your remembrance all of the things that I taught you. In fact, a couple of chapters later, John 16, 12, uh, he says this, I still have many things to say to you. He says this to his disciples, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So when Jesus ascends into heaven, Jesus doesn't quit teaching. He doesn't quit reminding, but rather He teaches, the Holy Spirit teaches Christ's words and brings to remembrance uh, the teachings of Christ. You might say, how in the world do we know how these conversations went? Well, the God who wants to reveal Himself to man doesn't fail. Do, you, do we really think that God wants to reveal Himself to us? He wants to give us His Word, but that God is so weak, He can't preserve His Word for us. He, he just can't, you know, it gets changed in it. And no, if God wants to give people His Word, He's going to 
ordain the circumstances, the eyewitnesses, the events they see. He's going to ordain their memory, and he's also going to ordain the writing down of it because God wants to give his word to his people. So we see, first of all, that the author of Luke is God himself. These are God's words. They're sure words. They're exact words. And God has preserved them uh, for us. The human author, however, commentators pretty much unanimously agree, is Luke, even though Luke never mentions himself in, in this third gospel or in Acts. So you say, well, how can we know that? Well, there's external evidence and there's internal evidence. And so just follow with me for a minute. Church tradition, the early historians unanimously say this gospel is written by Luke. Now, church tradition is not infallible Scripture, but traditions are valuable depending on how close they are to the source. Uh, the, the example uh, that I read John MacArthur gave was, if you were going to go to Jerusalem and uh, take a tour of, of the city, and you're going to go where... Uh, to this spot where they say, this is where Jesus dropped his cross, fell down, and uh, here's where he could no longer carry his cross anymore. Tradition says at this point, that's where it happened. The question is, is, well, when did that tradition begin? Well, that tradition began in the 1300s. So guess what? If the tradition started in the 1300s, it's probably not a good tradition. But the contemporaries of Luke, all the people that knew him, all the writings about it attribute this gospel to Luke. So that's pretty good tradition. But we don't have to rely just on that. There's evidence inside the text that can lead us uh, to the reality that he is the writer of this gospel. So here's uh, how we'll look at this. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Here's what we read. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So it's this classical Greek prologue where he says, I'm writing this for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, what Scott just read at the beginning of Acts, here's what he read. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with the things Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. So here's what we know. The person who wrote Acts is the person who wrote Luke. In fact, almost Everybody agrees that this is one work. It's Luke-Acts. It gets split up in our Bibles, but Luke would uh, uh, wrote all this. Uh, in a sense, there's two sections to it. There's book one, there's volume one, and then there's volume two. So do we get any clues in Acts who the author is? Here's what we find. In chapter 15, the writer all of a sudden starts talking about we and us. So at the Jerusalem council, 
all of a sudden, it seems like the writer of Acts was present at these events. He wasn't there throughout Jesus' life, but now all of a sudden, this writer is present from Acts 15 all the way to Acts 28. In fact, he's with Paul in Rome, likely all the way up until uh, his death. And so, what does that tell us? Well, if you look at all of Paul's letters, we can find out who Paul's fellow workers are because he often tells, so-and-so brings you greetings. Now, here's what we find in the New Testament, so follow me. There's 14 fellow workers that we know about that Paul has. 11 of them are talked about in uh, in uh, Luke-Acts, uh, basically in Acts. Three of them aren't. Titus, Demas, and Luke. So we would conclude that one of those three must be the writer. Well, here's what we know about Demas. He fell in love with the present world and walked away from the faith. And what we find from Titus is we know where Titus went uh, in some of his journeys And so we can see that it doesn't fit the pattern that he would have been with Paul at that time. So by deduction, it seems like definitely uh, Scripture even points to the fact that this is Luke. Now, you might say, why did we do all that? And what I want you to know is that (laughs) it's amazing how Scripture holds together. It's not easy all the time to go through and figure out who, who Paul's fellow workers are, but it's amazing how we can come uh, to a pretty good idea and, and, and really a really clear idea that uh, Luke is actually the author. Uh, Eusebius says that he was from Antioch and he was a physician. So what can we know about Luke? Um, Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. The Bible only speaks of Luke three different times. We're going to look at all those times, and we're going to see what we can learn about Luke. Colossians 4.10. Here's what Paul writes. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So here's what he says. Aristarchus, Mark, Barnabas, and Justice are the only Jewish helpers Paul has. They're the only ones from the circumcision party. But then he says this in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, meaning one of you Gentiles, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea in Hierapolis. Luke the beloved official, our physician, greets you, as does Demas. So what we can learn here is two valuable points. 
Luke is a Gentile. He's not a part of the circumcision party. In fact, Luke is the only Gentile that wrote any Scripture that God used uh, to write Scripture. So we can know that he's a Gentile, and we can also know from this that he's the beloved physician. Beloved physician. There's something special about Luke that when Paul speaks of an adjective to to share about him, uh, he uses the word beloved. Uh, We can know that Luke was a faithful servant to Paul. I mean, this guy is a servant. John MacArthur uh, writes, he's the companion of the Apostle Paul, uh, and that leads us to a lot of conclusions. He must have been faithful. He must have been enduring. He must have been loyal. He must have been brave because of all the things he went through with the Apostle Paul. Now, the second or another place Luke is mentioned, we find out a little bit about his faithfulness. In 2 Timothy 4.9, here's what Paul writes to Timothy about Luke. He says this, Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, Paul's at the very end of his life. He's imprisoned at Rome. He likely was uh, killed just a short time after writing this to Timothy. And he tells Timothy here, do your best to come soon. Demas, in love with this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Malta. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So when Paul, and and later on he says, Lord, don't hold it against them. It seems like as the persecution rose, Paul's fellow workers started to disappear. But there was one beloved faithful brother that was with him all the way to the end. And it was Luke. We know almost nothing about him Except, now, would a physician be valuable to the Apostle Paul? I mean, he's getting beat. He's getting stoned. They're shipwrecked. I mean, what a valuable, what a valuable uh, resource he would have been in friend. The only other place Luke has mentioned is in Philemon. And verse 23 Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So there's the only times uh, he is mentioned. But MacArthur writes this about him. He was with Paul in three imprisonments, one in Caesarea, two in Rome. We know about his faithfulness because he traveled with Paul over thousands of miles and would have been exposed to the same terrors and the same robbers and the same hostilities and the same illnesses and the same deprivations of travel in the ancient times that Paul was. We, we know also about him that he must have been a kind and tender-hearted man because call, Paul called him beloved. 
And as you go through the Gospel of Luke, you'll note there's a graciousness about him. He's not an in-your-face type of guy. There's a sweetness about Luke. There's a graciousness about him that comes through. He was beloved. He was Paul's private personal physician, and he endured himself greatly to the Apostle Paul. The second thing we can know about Luke, other than the fact that he's a Gentile physician and that uh, he was faithful to the Apostle Paul, so it would be the third thing, is he's an excellent historian. He's an excellent historian. Look at verse uh, verses 3 and 4. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the NASB, here's how those two verses go. I think it's a little clearer. It seemed fitting as for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now here's what we know. From this prologue, scholars think that the most impressive Greek classic prologue ever written is the one in these four verses. He was an educated, brilliant man, and he was writing to most excellent Theophilus. We're going to look at that in a minute. And so he had the ability to know how to discern good history from bad history. So you can get to the exact nature of the truth. This man's a physician. He's obviously an educated man. What do we know about his audience? In verse 3 it says, It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now in Acts, there's two times Luke uses that language, most excellent. Felix and Festus when he's on trial. So these are high up Roman governors. And so we can we're pretty sure that Theophilus is of a high-ranking order in the uh, Roman world. And so he's writing to him, and, uh, and that's who his audience is. So it's a Gentile audience. It's an educated Gentile audience. And it's amazing. Would, would you go through all this work to write this for one man? Now, Luke didn't... I don't think Luke knew this was going to be kept for us 2,000 years later. As far as we know from this text is he was writing it for this one, one guy. What a pastoral heart he has. This is someone who seems to be a believer but needs to be strengthened in the things that he already knows. And so he writes this account for Theophilus. And he has this balance He really wants us to know that Jesus came for the underdog, but also for the educated, even the educated Roman official. Luke portrays Rome in a pretty good light in comparison to the Jewish authorities. And 
And so we get a little bit of an idea of his audience. Obviously, God meant it for us to receive this. What was the action he did? What was he doing? He was gathering, look at verse 1, inasmuch as I've undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So he's saying many have gathered narrative that try to capture this narrative of the things that have been accomplished. He doesn't just say that many people wrote about Jesus but he talks about things accomplished among us. You see, he believes in a God who through Old Testament prophets prophesied that the coming Messiah would come. And now these things in Luke's day were accomplished. And he wants to tie people, not just to this interesting fella, Jesus, but he wants us to see how salvation history comes to its climax in his day. That's why he writes Acts. He wants us not only to see Christ come on the scene, but he wants us to see how God used the apostles to build his church and take the message to the ends of the earth, even to Rome. That's where the gospel of, or the, uh, book of Acts ends. And many people would have been writing of these things. In Luke 24, um, he says this in verse 17. He said to them, what is this conversation you are holding to with each other as you walk? This is the Emmaus Road. They stood looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have been, uh, that have happened here in these days? So we have the idea that if you were anybody, if you were a living soul, you were thinking about Jesus. Everybody knew what was going on. And in fact, when Paul is on trial uh, before Festus, here's what he says. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things that I am, that I am to speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So here's what's going on. Everybody knows about Jesus. People are writing accounts. Mark has written an account. People are talking. People are gathering information. And it seemed good for Luke. Look at verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us. Here we know Luke wasn't there, but rather he talked to eyewitnesses who delivered the information to him. He would have, we can tell from Acts that he spent all sorts of times with Mark, and he surely spent time with Matthew. So it's just amazing. These are real people in real rooms talking about Jesus and having conversations. And Luke is this inquisitive, he doesn't seem like a preacher type, but he's this inquisitive, brilliant guy going around taking notes so that when he writes an account, he writes a whole lot of things that Mark and Matthew didn't even write about. Seems like he interviewed Mary and people like that. So, 
we see his action that he wanted to write an orderly account. Look at, look at ver- verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. This doesn't mean chronological. It means logically ordered. It makes sense why he orders it the way he did. This isn't someone that just heard his story over here and then heard his story over here. Luke knew how to talk to sources and sift out good information and to order it correctly. This is the type of language he's using. He wants Theophilus to know that this isn't shady work that he's doing. His goal was to record the things that have been accomplished among us. He wants to tell the story of how God saves sinners. How Jesus Christ came onto the scene and is fulfilling all these promises that God has given. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So what was the aim of his writing? His action was to write Luke-Acts. So why did he do it? Look at verse 4. Then you may have certainty. Exact truth is how the NASB says it, concerning the things you have been taught. There's nothing more miserable than hearing the best news in the world and wondering, is it really true? Is it really true that I too will be resurrected like Christ when I die, that He was the first fruits? Is it really true that one man can take on the sins of the whole world? Nothing could be more miserable than to hear a little bit about Jesus and yet not know for certain that He is true and that He is life. To know the truth about all that was accomplished. God has revealed these things to Luke through eyewitnesses, through the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit. Maybe God just showed him things. We don't know exactly, but what we know is that God's word, or all Scripture is God-breathed. And His goal, His aim was that Theophilus' faith would be strengthened. So what's the application for us? Here's what you need to know. It doesn't matter if you've heard about Jesus and kind of know what He did a long time ago as though you put that truth in your brain and just say, I can get that answer right on a test. I know what He did. What does the Scripture say about faith? In Romans 10.14, here's what we find. How will they call on Him whom, whom they have not heard? How will they believe in Him who they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, beautiful are the feet of those who preach the Gospel. We find out that faith comes by hearing. As you read the Gospel of Luke, here's what will happen. You'll begin to believe, become more certain about your salvation. As you read the accounts of Luke, your faith will grow. Who here struggles with doubts? Everybody. So you know what you need? 
You need Luke's Gospel. You need to read it. You need to hear Jesus teach. You need to see the angel come to Mary. You need to see how Christ fulfills all these prophecies one after another. You have to see how Christ proved that He was the God-man through all of His miracles. You have to see the love and compassion of Christ as He says, pray for them, Father, for they don't even know what they're doing as they're killing Him. You and I need certainty. And you need to read the Gospel of Luke. You need to study the Gospel of Luke because you need your faith to grow. It is no doubt that your doubts are big if you've been a long time away from a Gospel or from any of God's words. It's when we're in the Word. This is why daily being in the Word is so important. Is when your faith grows. God will not grow you apart from His Word. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to change us. And Luke has written this Gospel so that you and I can have certainty. Remember how Paul lived his life? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, what does he say? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's how you live in this world. By faith in the Son of God who loved you. How's your faith going to grow? By reading the Gospels. Let's pray. Father, uh, if there's anyone here who is questioning what the good news is, Father, I pray that You would just let them know right now that the good news is, is that You sent Christ to save sinners. That those who trust in Him receive forgiveness of sin. Their sinful life was transferred to to Christ. And You put Christ's life on them. Put Christ's life in their account. Father, I pray that if there's someone here right now who is sick of having things go right, but then always having this, yeah, but this is going wrong. Father, I pray that that person might yearn for the type of good news that on their worst day, they could say, yeah, but I have eternal life in Christ. I'll never be separated from the love of Christ. Father, I thank You for the best news in the world. I thank You for guys like Luke that You led to record it down so we could know what you're like, Father, through Christ. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.